This is Train to Perform, the undisputed alpha podcast in training, fitness, and sports performance. Here, you'll develop your skills with the cold, hard facts in fitness, sports performance, recovery, and nutrition. Real, tried and true, evidence-based facts that have been proven to move you faster, move you stronger, and move you forward. Now, here's your host of Train to Perform, Julian Sisman. And welcome back to the Train to Perform podcast. Thank you guys for listening. I appreciate it. Today we have Dr. Joe Eisenman. Um, He is... uh, there's so much I could talk to him about, about him. Um, he's a part of a online platform called Volt Athletics. Uh, they use AI for, um, you know, team training, personal training, all sorts of um, amazing you know, programs on there for athletes or if it's just a general... Uh, population individual or person that wants to stay active keep working out they can use the platform um the details are in the show notes um he also is um you know really involved in the ltad so that's long-term athletic development um with the NSCA especially, but he also has his own programs, um, at currently at university of Nebraska, Kearney, um, developing a program for local youth athletes with the university and the undergrad students there. Um, we cover, uh, you know, so much along the lines of LTAD, um, with, um, you know, the state of, you know, specialization, um, the state of the current situation with COVID. Um, we talk about a lot of stuff with youth, about youth athletes, maturation, developmental stuff, um, why coaches should be involved and honestly a lot more. I would highly recommend any coach, parents, youth athletes, strength coach, um, to listen to this because we talk, we cover a lot of inf- amazing information. So check it out again, please, please, please review if you enjoy this podcast. Um, and I uh, hope you continue to listen to more. Thank you. In class. And then I teach, uh, an upper, gra- upper level kind of advanced exercise testing and prescription class. Okay. But then we're also running a youth athletic development program. Um, it's one that I started when I was at Michigan State, and uh, I, I, I'm starting it here as well. So we have student interns. And yeah, the interns were, yesterday, uh, we had athletes in from like four in the afternoon until close to nine o'clock last night. And then this morning, we had a VO2 max test, like bright and early at 7 a.m. So we were back in the lab, and, <laughs> and then we had more young athletes come in after, uh, you know, in the afternoon again. So they were all like, oh, man, I'm so tired. And I'm like, well, if this is going to be your chosen field, you need to understand that you're going you're gonna to work when, when the athletes are available, and they're available after school in the evenings, and then sometimes – you know, you have to pull off some early mornings as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's what I, that's what I do right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially with the with the whole COVID thing and school, because uh, I'm I'm here on the uh, in the DC area, and uh, yeah. uh, 
the kids don't go to school till nine. So uh, I'll do like sessions at like seven, mm-hmm. eight o'clock in the morning. And then, you know, after school, <laughs> three, yeah. three till like seven, eight. <laughs> so yeah. I, I totally get it. It's uh, I've been doing this for what, like five or six years now. So yeah. um, it, it's fun though. I mean, I enjoy the, the process. Um, and I think a lot of the kids, uh, do, do as well, you know, once they get into it, um, you know, obviously you, you, you know, more than I do that at the beginning, a lot of the kids are kind of like, it's like so much because, you know, they, uh, something that they have, haven't been around as much. Um, yep. and then, you know, once they kind of get into it, it, it makes it fun. So, yeah. Uh, Julian, remind me, um, have we met before? Have, are are you are you on on the soccer? Yeah, I'm I'm the chair of yeah. the soccer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. That, that's what I thought. So we we've yeah. been in uh, SIG meetings. Couple before. meetings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't know if I were you at the national here in DC last year. Oh. I think it was. Yeah. 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 Okay. For the NFC. Okay. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't know if I. I had a conversation with you there, but I know, yeah, we've been in the soccer, uh, the SIG meetings for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, so- I mean, there was never any soccer one, so that's why I kind of brought it back. Uh, it's obviously this is a huge sport in this country. So, um, uh, it's, uh, it's been pretty interesting. Uh, so we'll see, we'll see how, we'll see how it pans out as, you know, year two comes around. Um, so, we had the first uh, sort of like SIG event, yep. um, which was pretty cool. Um, a lot of people enjoyed it, so it was cool. Yeah, it was a it was a one day event. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. Just we, like, uh, we it was we, like all day. It was from like eleven to like six or something. Yeah, we did a uh, our long term athletic development SIG did a uh, four four hour pre con. Yeah. Pre- do the virtual national conference as well. So, um, yeah, that we had good numbers as well. I think there were over 200 actually. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, people always say that they want to get back, per, uh, you know, face to face and be able to network at conferences, but it'll, it'll be interesting to see, you know, once things open up and, you start having the face-to-face conferences of people are going to be like, uh, yeah, I'm not really sure because I can get together with, you know, a group of people over zoom or whatever. And we can have, you know, just as good of exchange as going yeah. someplace face-to-face. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to live conferences. Yeah. But I think, um, the big thing with the conferences, I mean, and, and this is my personal opinion, uh, is some of the on some of the in-person sort of, uh, demos and things like that is a little bit more those things are key to like especially our our field like uh you get more out of it than like looking at a freaking powerpoint like because it's easier for you to take that and say okay let me take that with me and then i can implement it tomorrow um versus like you got to sit there and like read the powerpoint again figure out like how you're going to do it um, so I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying like, I think a lot of the in-person stuff is a little bit more, um, a little bit more, or, I mean, for some people it might be better for learning too. So I don't know. Yeah. So, 
So, um, so kind of give me, fill, I mean, fill me in on like your background, you know, why you got to where you are. I know you're, you're really big into lo- the long-term development and I am too. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I, I'll be the first to say I don't have an undergrad in this. I have got my master's and I'm working on my PhD right now in it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you kind of like been through this from day one. So I'm just curious to see where you came from. And then obviously I'll kind of go with some of the questions I sent you earlier. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So my background, mm-hmm. uh, I, I grew up in, small town, rural North Dakota. Okay. Um, basically got on my bike in the morning, had my baseball glove or a basketball or a football, rode around town looking for kids to play and just played a lot of unstructured, you know, sport. Um, so I've always had a love for movement and sport and physical activity. Mm. And then had an opportunity to go to college and, you know, compete um, in collegiate baseball and basically majored in physical education and health, Uh, was preparing to be a physical education teacher and coach, and then kind of started to fall in love with the science part of it. And so really catered my studies more towards um, physiology and exercise physiology took up a minor in biology, um, started really getting interested in human performance kind of from a selfish reason as I was a collegiate athlete. Yeah. You know, uh, we didn't have a formal strength and conditioning program. It was a small NAIA school, you know, and this is back in, you know, around 1990. So no formal strength and conditioning program. So it was kind of, you're, you're kind of on your own. Yeah. You know, so I was taking courses in biomechanics and exercise physiology and, uh, yeah, I just kind of started designing my own training programs and training myself. And there were a couple of other, my teammates who were kind of interested in it. Um, and then graduated from undergrad and decided to continue graduate studies in the area. Um, and then, you know, even as a graduate student, I, I wanted to kind of be a practitioner um, but it was doing quite well in my studies and kept like really having a curiosity towards the scientific aspect of it and became involved in research. And that kind of led to, you know, pursuing my PhD. Um, all along I was coaching. I've always coached baseball. Um, so I've always had an interest in, in young people. And decided to do my PhD to focus on pediatric exercise science. So kind of chose to go to a place where, you know, it was very, uh, a renowned program. I could, I could be surrounded by, you know, leading scholars in, you know, children and exercise, pediatric exercise science. So, um, I went to Michigan state university and studied with Bob Molina, who, uh, literally wrote the textbook, on growth, maturation, and physical activity. Like literally there's a textbook called growth, maturation, and physical activity. So no better person to study with than professor Molina. And obviously during my PhD studies continued to get very involved in, in research activities. Um, and again, still kind of coaching all along and then finished my PhD and entered academia. And, you know, I've taught in the area, 
of uh, exercise physiology, um, some strength and conditioning, and a lot of the, like pediatric exercise science, pediatric exercise physiology, and doing research. Um, did that for you know ten plus years, and um, kind of really got the bug to really immerse myself more in youth athletic development and long-term athletic development. So I founded what was called Spartan Performance at Michigan State University where kids from our mid-Michigan area, they would come into the training center on campus. Um, They would be tested, trained, and then go through sports nutrition and mental skills. So a very holistic model of youth athletic development health and well-being and physical fitness as well. And then we had contracts with about 20 different uh, schools, high schools, middle schools, and then club sports in the mid-Michigan area. So on a daily basis, we would serve close to 2,500 athletes. And we did that through a pretty robust internship program. So we would have anywhere between 12 to 20 student interns upper level undergraduate student or upper level undergrad students or graduate students um, who would basically be assigned a school or a club and they would act as the head sport performance specialist, kind of leading those efforts um, offsite in those schools or clubs. Um, And again, everything from the physical preparation aspect of it to teaching basic sports nutrition and then some basic mental skills, sports psychology as well, along with some injury prevention measures. So again, very holistic approach. And then we also had three registered dietitians on staff and a a PhD level sports psychologist. So when we had to refer kids out, like if they had, you know, special special, uh, cases for sports nutrition or sports psychology, we could get individual consultations with professionals in that area. And we were also very closely aligned with sports medicine. So we had great oversight from our sports medicine team and then also work closely with with sports medicine and physical therapy on return to play protocols as well. So um, uh, I had a great, uh, we had a great machine going. Yeah, it sounds like it. And then uh, I'm not afraid to admit that I, I chase bigger logos. And uh, I took a position with USA Football, which uh, is kind of the junior partner, if you will, with the NFL that kind of oversees youth and um, high school amateur football in the United States as the governing body, much like U.S. soccer, U.S. Mm -hmm. lacrosse. So I was the head of sport performance and and coach education with USA Football uh, for one year. it wasn't a good fit for me, so I left. I've been I, I consulted for a few years in the area of sports science, sport sport technology, and long term athletic development, and have recently taken a position at the University of Nebraska Kearney, uh, where I'm heading up uh, a very similar program. We're just getting started. We're only eight weeks in, I guess, two months yeah. in to what we're calling Loper Performance, and I'm using my Spartan Performance model here in greater Nebraska to serve the needs of rural uh, coaches, athletes, and sport parents in, in greater Nebraska. So we're just getting started um, with those efforts. That's awesome. 
You're also, aren't you on uh, uh, working with Volt? Yeah, so that's that's one of the sport tech companies. Okay. Uh, that that I do consulting with. I'm actually my my title there is head of sport science. Okay. <clears throat> so so I consult and provide input into, you know, what's going on in the area of the science of resistance training and other sport science aspects. Um, a little bit of testing and monitoring with them. Um, they also capture a lot of data. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a it's a cloud based interface. Uh, it's an app. So, you know, of the, you know, millions of users across the world, they're always inputting their data on their resistance training programs. So I work closely with their uh, head of data science and kind of doing some research and development kind of behind the scenes to continue to refine some of the machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, algorithms that the Volt uh, strength training programming is based off of. Yeah, it's, I use it. <laughs> I use it like every day. Uh, it's actually, yeah. it's, 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 it's a great, um, it's great. I mean, I, uh, I've been using it on and off for a good two years now. Um, e- even before they started doing the artificial intelligence and like, you know, um, the automatic uh, change of um, weight or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's pretty yeah. cool how it's, how it's like, easy and I, there's a guy that I work with he uses it too so it's uh it's a great app I'll just just saying <laughs> yeah yeah, um, yeah thank yeah thanks for that it, it, it's good to hear from another strength and conditioning coach because you know sometimes there are strength and conditioning coaches out there who you know they uh they kind of poo-poo on it a little bit because it's like oh it's taking the jobs of strength coaches and that's not really the intent of Volt um, yeah. you know, it's meant to be, it's meant to be a tool. Yes. Um, you know, and, 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 there are cases where there are schools, high schools, clubs, you know, and or individuals who, you know, maybe they can't get to a certified strength and conditioning coach for a lot of different reasons. So it offers them, you know, the opportunity to engage in a well-designed mm-hmm. resistance training program that has incredible animations, incredible coaching cues, um, and a great user interface on it. But even for, you know, a strength and conditioning coach who's managing a lot of teams, it can be a great resource as well. So, you know, instead of plugging all your numbers into an Excel spreadsheet, you know, now you have the app, which has a lot of automation to it. Mm -hmm. And again, using, you know, some, uh, you know, machine learning, artificial intelligence engines behind it to help you, you know, calculate the appropriate loads as well as the participants are going through their strength training program. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think it, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't see it as a way that it could uh, really take away. Cause I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you, it provides like, Hey, like this is the program, but there are so many ways to, as a strength coach, even if I was using it with teens, like you could, you, you could change so many things. Um, and there's so many apps out there that do the same thing. Like, I don't, I don't see it as like, I mean, as a big, I think, I think it's an easier way to like program. So then it's like, okay, cool. This is the workout. It's a very, it's a lot easier to, to, to see for the kids to see. Um, and then versus like pen and paper where, you know, things can get lost. Um, or, you know, kid doesn't have it, had, doesn't bring the paper, the workout, or you, you know, forget it. It's all there. Uh, that's how I look at it. I don't look at it as a, 
as a something that's going to harm the field. I think it's a it's a good advantage for uh, strength coaches for sure. Yeah. So cool. Well, I just wanted to kind of get an idea of like uh, your brains behind that. Um, so my first first thing is you know you talk about unstructured play. Like, why is that important for kids? You know, nowadays, especially with, you know, TV, all these electronics, um, you know, sort of interrupting their unstructured play as, as you, as you mentioned before, like why, why, like what is, what does it give an advantage to a kid? Yeah. So it's, it's just the opportunity to express themselves Mm -hmm. freely, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, we take even really young kids now, six, seven, eight years of age, and they go to practice and it's so structured, right? Mm -hmm. There's a cone drill set up, run to this cone, shuffle of that cone, backpedal to this cone, or, you know, even sports specific stuff. It's very micromanaged and controlled by the coach. So the kid never gets the opportunity to express themselves using their body how they want to because they're told exactly what to do all the time. And so, you know, for the kid not to be able to express themselves how they want with their body, sometimes, you know, they're not really sure what they can do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And coaches sometimes aren't really sure what kids can do either because they tell them what to do all the time. And, um, you know, I, I don't think the pendulum has to swing one way or the other. You know, I think even for younger kids, you know, we need some structure in practice and training sessions and whatnot, but being able to um, allow at least some time for that unstructured free play during a quote-unquote structured practice is good, you know, again, for both the coach and the kid. Um, you know, that that's that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it comes down to a parental, a neighborhood, and a societal thing as well. Um, you know, I, I, I let off and I talked about when I was growing up in small town, North Dakota, and I would just get on my bike. I mean, young age, I would just tell my mom, Hey, I'm going, I'm going up to my buddy's house and I would get on my bike and I would go. And now, Mm -hmm. you know, depending on where you live in the United States, you know, there's parents have a lot of concerns about safety Mm -hmm. Uh, and, 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 and sometimes not for a lot of good reason either, because, in some areas there's relatively low crime or whatever, but you know, it's such a, a fear mongering, you know, culture that we live in now that a lot of parents just have these concerns about, about the free play aspect of it. So not allowing kids just to take off and do what they want, but you know, even within, even within the household and how parents parent and allow kids to engage in, you know, media and sedentary time and not be like, Hey, why don't we go out in the backyard and just rip around and play, play tag or, you know, once you go kick the ball around in the backyard or, you know, you have to provide those opportunities as well. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think sometimes from a parent aspect, it's parents not allowing or providing those opportunities for young kids, you know? Um, it, it, and it's actually really interesting because it's become so ingrained now when you, even when you allow opportunity for free play, sometimes the kids have no idea what to do because they've never done it before. Right. 
they're, they're so used to a coach showing up saying, mm-hmm. I need three lines and here's what we're going to do. And this is exactly what we're going to do. And you need to do it exactly how I tell you to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there, there's a lot of different levels to that, to that question into unstructured free play. But I just think, yeah. you know, for adults to be a little bit more mindful of it and to provide and allow those opportunities. Um, you know, and just think about school with recess being cut. Like mm-hmm. there, there's an opportunity right there that's just been cut as well. So we need to re we need to re-engineer it, you know, back, yeah. into, right back into our society. Yeah. It's crazy. You mentioned that. Uh, Cause I was literally like, three hours ago having the same conversation with uh, a mom um, uh, at our facility and uh, talking about, um, you know, the same thing where we would like, when I was, I mean, look, like I'm not even that old and we're talking like 15, maybe 20 years ago, you know, I was going out, I would literally get on my bike and like go to the park, like whatever, like no, no, like, Hey mom, I'll be home in like four hours. Um, and just ride around, find things to do, whatever. Uh, and, 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 and it's not, and it was not that long ago. Um, so it's just funny. Cause literally I was telling the mom, I was like, like tw- 2006 when Facebook came out, like everything went downhill from there. Uh, as far as like, you know, kids going outside, kids doing this, kids doing that. And I, and, and then just enjoying, you know, doing things with their friends. Um, now it's like all over some type of social media or this or that. Um, and it's, it, I I hate to say, I mean, it's really disrupted a lot of things. And, and, and and to also tag along what you said about like the coaching, how coaches coach, um, I see it all the time. It's in the worst is soccer. Uh, Cause you, they literally like everything is aligned. Kids are standing around. It's never like, like multiple games going on. Even if it's like smaller numbers of kids just like playing. Um, and it's, and it's not fun. And I, I can tell you, it's not fun. Um, so I, I totally agree with you. It's um, something that needs to be changed. I mean, and it's, I feel like it gets worse every year because especially now with this whole COVID thing, uh, you know, we have a lot of kids that are getting injury after injury because they're going from doing absolutely nothing sitting in their house all day when, when technically they should have been outdoors, like playing around to then just immediately going back to some type of practice or game or whatever. And it's, uh, I mean, uh, I've seen it like torn ACLs, tons of, uh, connected tissue or tissue injuries and things like soft tissue injuries, things like that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not, uh, something that, um, is, it, it can be changed, but I think a lot of, uh, a, a lot of, a lot of parental, um, guard needs to be kind of like dropped a little bit and allowing kids to kind of like, you know, like you said, explore. Yeah. The, the other interesting thing with parents, um, you know, in our field in particular, mm-hmm. if you allow for unstructured free play as part of your training session and they're watching the training session, 
they'll come up to you afterwards and like, so what's going on? Why'd you, why'd you just let the kids run around and do what they wanted? Like, you know, I, I, I'm paying you, right. If it's feed for service, I am paying you to get my kids, you know, faster and stronger and more agile. So I want, I want to see you doing more instruction, you know, like you should be instructing them on sprint mechanics or agility <laughs> drills, you know? So again, it's, it, it's the perception of as well, like parents perceive that their kids should be training like an adult mm-hmm. and they don't see, you know, a game of tag, which is a great developer of acceleration and dodging and, agil- and agility and yeah. balance and coordination and all that, right? Probably way better than any drill that we can think of. Yeah, because uh, it's, very, it's, it's a, almost a simulation of what they're going to be doing anyway. Exactly. But, but again, that's, it it becomes the parent thing as well, where, you know, and sometimes coaches may not opt to do unstructured free play because, you know, we live in a pay pay to play sport world right now in youth sports. Mm -hmm. So no matter if it's training, strength and conditioning, training and conditioning or sport specific, more than likely that parent is, is paying for that kid to be out there. So if they see this unstructured nature of practice, they're going to be frowning upon it perhaps and not understanding, you know, the real purpose and the real benefits that it can provide as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. I mean, uh, I, I, uh, like right now, um, I basically do recess with a bunch of kids like around <laughs> here. And, uh, fortunately the parents don't even don't, they just drop the kids off and I almost like, just kind of let them play like we'll play like different games like sometimes we'll do some some forms of you know speed work but it's just like it's more fun I don't really I don't really give them too much instruction it's they're they're middle school kids like they're gonna have fun regardless of what we what I say or do um so yeah I I I totally agree with you it's um it's unfortunate because it's the same way with soccer uh you know the more you can uh, simulate the game, uh, it's b- the better for the kids. But a lot of coaches, even even the coaches, don't do that. And, and the parents think like there needs to be oh he needs to learn how to the skills and all this and that. It's like well you're gonna learn the skills when you play the game, regardless of how you do it. You don't need to stand in a line and go through a bunch of cones for an hour and a half. Um, so yeah, it's uh, I totally agree with you on that one. Um, so, you know, when it comes to long-term athletic development, like, are there like key, like, are there like key sort of, um, what are they, like KPI type things that like should be done? Is there like a certain path for kids or is it just like, you know, what, whatever, um, you know, is sort of, you know, part of the the movement, um, how do I want to say this? The movement sort of like, uh, continuum, I guess. Is there any, Hey, this person needs to be here at this time, or is it just like whatever they can do as they develop over time or their age? I mean, I know each gender matures at a certain time and every kid grows at a different time. So there's yeah, a lot of factors. So, so yeah, I think, 
Yeah, there there are a lot of factors, and I think it's important to point out. Like a lot of people think, you know, long term athlete development is this rigid model, and it's a, in fact, quite a flexible framework. So, yeah, every kid has their individualized path, right? Every person has their individualized path, and and really the KPI you mentioned KPIs, right? The KPI is really what we call physical literacy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a person's uh, knowledge, understanding, and their motivation to be physically active, but also being able to have, you know, the the, the movement capabilities. So they're they're competent in those movement capabilities, and they're also confident in their abilities, so that they can lead a physically active life. And so, again, that doesn't sound like competitive athletics at all but it still is a competitive athletics if you mm-hmm. want it to be. Mm-hmm. And again, remember long-term athlete development and a lot of people get, are getting hung up on the word and the, and the, and the nomenclature about athlete or athletic about, Oh, I'm not interested in the long-term athletic development model because you're just serving athletes. Well, we didn't say elite athletes, competitive athletes. Some of us believe everybody's an athlete Mm-hmm. And everybody should exhibit a certain level of athleticism because athleticism is merely a combination of health-related fitness and skill-related fitness, right? Like we, we all should have a acceptable level of body composition, of aerobic fitness, of muscular strength, of muscular power, of flexibility, mobility, and all the other health-related fitness traits, and then also some level of skill-related fitness as well, you know, whether that be speed and agility or also, you know, the fundamental movement skills as well, you know, the ability to hop, skip, jump, throw, catch, and all the other fundamental movement skills. So we need this movement battery, if you will, so that we can have the opportunities and choices to play and engage in different sports, games, uh, and activities, you know, no matter if those are competitive or recreational, so that we can live a physically active lifestyle. So again, there's this, some people say there's a performance pathway and there's a participation pathway. And sometimes both those pathways overlay each other, especially at younger ages. You know, we, we want them on that movement pathway, no matter if it's participation or performance, you know, but we all, we always get caught up with the performance aspect of it. And that's where people really miss the boat with long-term athlete development, right? Because development is a process. It takes, it takes time, you know, so winning the eight-year-old city championship, does that matter? Yeah, maybe not so much, right? Did they have fun? Did they enjoy it? Are they develop? Are they developing not only you know the physical attributes that we want them to be developing, but this is also a very holistic model as well, right? Are they developing psychosocially? Are they are they developing emotionally as well and socially? So, sport physical activity is providing that vehicle just to be an overall good and well human being mm-hmm. yeah so yeah i'm not sure if i i'm not sure if i specifically answered your question no 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 there's, a lot, there, there, there's there, there's a lot in there right in terms of kpis yeah and i think 
you know, I, I, I think enjoyment and fun yeah. is certainly one of them because if we're not enjoying it and we're not having fun, no matter what it is, we're probably not going to continue our participation in it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, it, and again, when we look at like the performance model, you know, very few of us go on to make a living in sport mm-hmm. as an athlete, right. Mm-hmm. Or as a, as a participant. But we also know what happens when we quit engaging in sport and physical activity. I mean, the evidence is clear in its relationship with, with health and well-being and with several morbidities and mortalities. Yeah. So again, we need to have fun and enjoy it. But again, we need to develop that movement repertoire so that we can have options and opportunities as well. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, personally, uh, I think um, the fact that I, at a younger age, participated in a number of different sports. Um, I mean, obviously, when I was growing up, there really wasn't much uh, strength conditioning facilities. That, that type of business, like it is these days, wasn't really, um, you know, like you said, even when you were growing up, like wasn't like the thing to do. Like you, you kind of like uh, it was more. I, I, there really wasn't much of anything, but uh, I think it helped uh, my overall understanding of you know being able to do different things when I'm playing different sports, you know, um, and understanding how to jump. And I have still to this day, like, you know, it's just easy to know how to like shoot a basketball, like how to do different things. And I, and, and, um, kind of leading on to the next question, like, what is your opinion about sort of the specialization when younger, when kids are, you know, going into whatever sport, like, is it, yeah. What's, what's your opinion about that? Yeah. So there's, there's a little bit of, uh, evidence for it, but there's also a little bit of personal opinion as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the evidence is becoming clearer and clearer about, you know, kids who do specialize early. And again, I think mm-hmm. it's really clear on that too, right? Is what age are they specializing? So, mm-hmm. you know, the studies that are coming out now, like before the age of 12, roughly the age of 12, early specialization. And again, defining specialization as participating in that sport for at least nine months, right? Solely within that sport, dedicating yourself to that sport at least nine months of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, increased risk of injury, increased risk of burnout, you know, uh, diminished, diminished breadth in their motor skill repertoire. Um, So again, the evidence is there for sampling of sports early on before the age of 12. Um, Does that mean, does that mean if one does specialize before the age of 12, that they're, you know, uh, not, you know, that, that they, that they're going to drop out, that they are going to have injury, that they're not going to quote unquote make it. Maybe not necessarily. So there's a few things here. And this gets a bit to my personal opinion, but a little bit of insight as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there's several athletes who they love a sport and they've loved the sport since they've been seven or eight. They can't wait to get out of bed and go play baseball or basketball or soccer. They just, they just love playing and they have no interest maybe in playing any other sport, but the type of environment that they're in 
you know, in terms of, again, both their home environment and what their parents do and the, and the pressures that parents may put on the kid and the pressures that coaches may put on kids is going to have an influence on how that early specialization manifests as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, you can specialize in soccer and you can go home and you and your dad can go out in the backyard and maybe play a game of tag or play a game of kickball or play a game of dodgeball where you are getting those other movement skills involved in it and having fun and, and enjoying things outside of soccer. It's not in a formal manner, right? It's not organized. It's unorganized, yeah. unstructured free play like we talked about before, right? Yeah. So it's that mix. And we see this in some countries, right? Where kids play soccer all the time. But they're also ripping around and playing some other things with their friends, tag and climbing on the school monkey bars. So they're getting exposed to some strength activities through, you know, playing on a playground or playing tag in the playground, so on and so forth. But again, they have this joy and love for one, one single sport. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I witnessed it when I went to the Dominican Republic with baseball. Like those kids play baseball all the time. By definition, they specialize in baseball. They're not much interested to play anything else. But because again, you know, cultural, but also, you know, perhaps a lack. Not, and I'm saying, you know, this is, this is uh, in in some cases, not in all cases. You know, it can it it, it can work out okay. Um. Now, again, when we get to ages, you know, 13, 14, 15, and kids start to, and kids start to specialize, um, you know, again, is it their choice or their pressures on them? Because that, that, that can work against somebody as well. And then the last thing I want to provide some insight on is something that I call the fallacy of the multi-sport athlete. Because we have kids who are 10 years of age and they might play two sports. They might play baseball and hockey. But I can guarantee you that there's a lot of them who play, who play baseball and hockey. I'm just giving you an example of two sports right there. They play both those sports year round. Mm-hmm. Because my son did it. <laughs> he, was 10, he was 9, 10 years of age and he played baseball and he played hockey. But he played both of them year round. There were many days where we would go from a baseball practice to a hockey practice, from a hockey game to a baseball game, so on and so forth, right? So what we need to think of then is the, is the total volume, right? The total volume of, of, uh, of uh, work that they're exposed to because, that, because people will wave the flag and say, oh, my kid's a multi-sport athlete. They play two sports. Yeah, but they play both year-round. And they're burnt out, right? So it leads to the same thing as early specialization does. Yeah. yeah. Right? So we have to be careful about how we're defining that and how we're thinking about it as well. And again, I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm not one to be a anti-sport specialization. I just think we have to think of all the caveats that come along with it as well. Mm-hmm. You know, because in certain, in certain uh, I think these are rare, in certain circumstances, it can play out okay. But again, there has to be a lot of enjoyment. It has to be pressure-free from the kid. They have to be exposed to other things, and, you know, and not only movement, but educational and social things as well. You know? but, but again, most of the time what we see 
is early sport specialization. One sport, that's all you do. There's a lot of pressure. You may neglect, you know, friendships and social opportunities and sometimes neglect educational things as well. And this doesn't bode very well for developing an overall holistic human being, does it? No. And that's when we get, and that's when we get into trouble. Yeah. 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 I agree. Uh, yeah. I never, I never, I never thought of it that way that you were talking about with your son, that whole like total volume of, you know, play every single day. I mean, I'm sure it was seven days a week at to some, at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and, and you know, there's going to be people who listen to this and they're like, Joe, how can you say that? You know better than that. <laughs> but again, you know, it's tough to be a sport parent. Yeah. No, like, I mean, like, I, like I, I don't I'm, doubt I'm, it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very well educated on this topic, you know, but still like I was, I was a sport parent, like all the other sport parents were. And mm-hmm. so, you know, there's, there's peer aspects, there's social aspects, you know, you know, we, we kept good tabs on things, you know, his, yeah. his well-being and whatnot and made sure that he was still having fun and enjoying himself. But, you know, you just, you, you start to get, uh, you start to, you start to get carried away and, and sucked into the vortex of the, of the, of the youth sport culture. That is yeah. what we have in America. So it's, it, it's challenging. Um, yeah. Cause everybody, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's like a status of like, if my kid is doing this much and he's getting, and they think it's like the more they do, the better they are. But yeah, I mean, and, and you, you and I know, you and I both know that, you know, that, that there's only, it gets to a point where there's diminishing returns on the amount of practice, the amount of, you know, you know, going from one practice to another, um, I, I, I mean, like you said, I see it all the time. I hear about it all the time. Um, and I tell kids, uh, you know, to, to really, really focus on, you know, one practice a day if they can. Um, yeah. especially if it's like, if they're doing some, something, you know, seven days a week. Um, or like mm. if you're going to do two practices, make sure like the next day you're not doing anything or, maybe one practice, not two, like multiple times a, a day, a week, because you're, you're just gonna, there's going to be only, your body's going to get you to a certain point and it's going to be like, okay, I can't do anything anymore. Yeah. Then, uh, so, so, so Julian, to add, to add to that, just a couple of other things. So I mentioned yeah. Spartan performance where kids would come into the training center. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that we would do is we had a, we had an orientation meeting and they filled mm-hmm. out a training log. Mm-hmm. And the training log asks about all of their activities. So what, what's the frequency of these activities on a weekly basis? What's the intensity and the duration of these activities on a daily basis? So we would turn people away, right? We would tell parents, this is not a good, this is not a good option for you right now because instead of training your kid, we may overtrain your kid mm-hmm. just by having them come here, mm-hmm. you know? But this also gets to the business of youth sports. And we have all these private facilities and a lot of these private facilities drive this specialization, don't they? Because they have to keep the lights on. Yeah, I own a baseball academy and we play a spring season 
and a summer season, well, of course, we got to have to have fall ball, right? So you got to play fall ball because if you don't play fall ball, you're probably not going to play on our summer travel team next summer. And then what happens in the winter? Oh, we have hitting league and you need some private instruction. So they, they, they almost force the hand. And I was alluding to the difficulties of being a sport parent. And you get, like I said, sucked into the youth sport vortex a little bit by mm-hmm. some of these private facilities because it's their business, you know? Uh, so you always have to kind of question, you know, when they have on their website, yeah, this is about development. You know, you, you really have to say, is this really about development? You know, uh, and, and, I, and I understand because, you know, of the capitalistic landscape that we're in. Um, and yeah, pe- these people have to keep their, their lights on. But, yeah, you know, again, they also need to be thoughtful about the burnout aspect of it, the other opportunities that they're not affording this young person as well, like other sports and truly being a multi-sport athlete, mm-hmm. um, as well. And, and, you know, it's, uh, it can be a bit unique to the United States just because of how our sport system is set up, you know, whereas in Europe they have sport clubs, so they might have under one roof, multiple sports. And I know there's, you know, some talk in some smaller or in, in, in some communities in the U S where they want to kind of go to that model, which would be really unique as well. So, <clears throat> kind of um, question I have, are you able to use like your sports science background with the LTAD or is there like, did that not really blend together? Oh, it goes hand in hand, right? Okay. I mean, uh, I mean, we always have to look at the evidence, you know, mm-hmm. if we think about sports science being the study and the application of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, scientific principles, you know, within biomechanics, exercise, physiology, sports psychology, and all the other domains of, of sports science. So we're, we're applying that, right, to the development of young people as they go through this process, um, and specifically like with the physical development. So, you know, understanding growth and maturation and being able to apply those, those principles and looking at, you know, the monitoring of growth and maturation of the young person so that we can look at you know, the outcomes, um, the physical output outcomes, um, and how they're changing, um, you know, with, with age, with, uh, the maturity process with puberty, so on and so forth, maybe changing training programs based on where they at, where they're at within, um, their journey of growth and maturation as well. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of crossover and application of sports science into long-term athlete development. So are you able to, are you able to use that data for like, you know, kids that are coming through, um, and then from, you know, kids that are like, obviously hitting certain levels, like, oh, you're like, oh, from past, you know, experience or from past stuff that we have, you know, you know, this person could be here or, you know, within this range, I guess you could say. Yeah. So, you know, what, what's, what's critical for us when a kid enters our program is to get you know, a routine battery and those, that routine battery includes, you know, obviously height and weight, body composition. And if we continue to monitor that over time, we can get indicators of, of, you know, where they're at, you know, within, you know, the maturity spectrum. 
but also getting some of those physical performance outputs as well and how they're, how they're changing. So it, it, it's part of a monitoring system, but it also allows for research as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's what I call the living lab example. Like, yeah, that's awesome. You know, you know, sometimes we just set up these natural experiments of, you know, program A versus program B. Um, within our programs, it depends on the time and how many kids are enrolled and, and, you know, different schools or clubs that we're, that we're, that we're working with as well. Um, but yeah, that can give us, you know, insight into the effectiveness of programs um, at different ages and at different stages mm -hmm. of maturation as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of, a hot topic is, you know, uh, windows of opportunity right? Like, oh, we must train speed at this age. We must train agility. We must train strength or power. So um, not much of that is founded on really sound science. And, you know, it's important to train all facets of athleticism across the entire childhood and adolescent spectrum. Uh, obviously, you can train, um, you know, we're not going to be looking at training muscular hypertrophy, at ages six, seven, and eight, because we know, you know, based on their biology and physiology, yeah. that that's probably not going to happen. Correct. That's kind of sometimes where the misnomer of, you know, windows of opportunity happens is because, you know, a lot of the talk is around that age of peak height velocity and the adolescent growth spurt where kid, kids, if they train or not, are going to have huge gains, you know, dr dramatic gains. And a lot of those physical performance outputs just because of normal growth and maturation, you know, so. So <clears throat> talking about growth and maturation, uh, do you think, or do you see a lot of sport coaches now, um, trying to get more involved and in trying to understand the whole process, um, you know, of a kid, you know, going through that process. Yeah. Um, do you think it's, you think it's helpful? Um, and is it something that's becoming more, you know, seen more? Uh, I'm going to be frank, Julian, in this country, <laughs> in this country, no, uh, in the rest of the world, especially in England, you know, in the, in the premier league, in the academy system, um, and in other European, especially academy systems, yes. Mm -hmm. Many okay. of the strength and conditioning coaches and sports scientists in European soccer academies and even rugby academies are, are very switched on, as they say, uh, to growth and maturation because they, they see its application and better understanding, you know, um, how these physical performance outputs and what I mean by physical performance outputs, speed, agility, strength, power, so on and so forth, you know, how they're changing naturally and how they're changing with training and they're better able to communicate, you know, those changes to the athlete, to the coaches and to the parents. And also around the adolescent growth spur, like when is that going to occur? So taking these routine measures of height and weight, and calculating growth rates and or predicting the age at peak height velocity or percent predicted height, adult height, and using those as indicators of maturity status, because there's, you know, now a handful of studies that are indicating that the adolescent growth spurt is uh, uh, kids who are going through the growth spurt are at an increased risk for injury because we're having some differential growth between, you know, 
uh, tendon, mm-hmm. bone, and bone and muscle. Mm-hmm. And then you know, there's this interest in this concept of adolescent awkwardness as well. And so being able to identify like when that kid is about to go through the growth spurt, right? Um, so again, instead of eyeballing it and saying, oh, they look like it. No, like getting numbers and actually calculating the growth rates and or, like I said, using some of the, you know, equations like the maturity offset or the Camus Roach to estimate predicted adult height and using those as maturity indicators to give you that insight of, oh yeah, they're, they're about ready to take off for their growth spurt or they're, you know, in their growth spurt, they're circa PHV and be able to kind of retrain some of those fundamental movement skills, perhaps in some of those kids who may be experiencing, you know, adolescent awkwardness. So, um, you know, most, most of the people who follow and like some of the stuff that I post on social media Mm -hmm. and or email me, are from European soccer or rugby academies and I'm developing some really nice collaborations. And for some reason, there's not, there's not as much interest in the United States around, around this topic. Interesting. And that's, and that's all across the board on all sports. Yeah, I think so for the most part. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, so I've, I've been involved with a, with a colleague in the UK. He, we actually did our PhD together, uh, Dr. Sean Cumming. And there's this concept of biobanding, which you're probably familiar with because you're a soccer guy, right? So yeah. in, the pre, in the Premier League academies in particular, they're doing these biobanded events. So instead of age group events, the U12 kids, the U14 kids or whatever, they're getting a maturity indicator. So the early maturing boys are playing against the early maturing boys. The late maturing boys are playing against the late maturing boys, right? Because when you, when you mix a group of you, you know, yeah. thir- 13-year-old boys together, you have early yeah. average and late matures, and you have mm-hmm. the early matures who are big and strong and fast who just bowl everybody over. They may not have to rely on their technical or tactical ability because they rely on their physical ability, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have the late matures who they may, they may be highly skilled, highly skilled, right? They have, yes. great, they have great technical and tactical yes. skills, but physically they're physically, not strong yeah. enough. They're not fast enough. They get pushed off the ball, whatever it may be. Now all of a sudden they start playing, you know, with kids their same biological age, right? Now, now all of a sudden they, you know, they level the playing field, so to mm-hmm. speak. And, mm-hmm. and there have been, again, a handful of studies that have been published on this with focus groups and semi-structured interviews with the kids, and the kids love it. You know, No, that's smart. Yeah, and, and, and again, people, people will poo-poo on this idea too because they're like, well, that's just not the way it works. It, you know, when they get older, they're going to be competing against their age-related peers. Well, yeah, they are, but at a younger age, right? Let's not weed out some of those late yeah, maturing exactly. late maturing boys in particular who are highly skilled, but they get cut because they're not strong and fast and big and powerful, so on and so forth. You know, so biobanding isn't a all the time thing. You mm-hmm. know, it's not like you like you use it all the time. Yeah. But you can use it for selection. Mm-hmm. You can use it for competition, a a jamboree on a weekend. Some of the clubs are using it, you know, they have, they have a one, you know, once a week, they're having bio-banded practices. And then the strength and conditioning staff, they're using it as well. 
right? A group of 13-year-old boys or whatever come in into the gym and the early maturing boys who now might be ready for, well, for some, hy some um, hypertrophic resistance training, right? In terms of set rep schemes and, and things like that, mm -hmm. they can be put on a different program than the later matures. Mm -hmm. So um, again, understanding growth and maturation, if you're working with young athletes is vital. Yeah. You know, like I always say, first understand the system, mm -hmm. right? And the system is growth and maturation. And if you don't understand the system, you're not going to understand your training methodology and the responses to training that you're getting. Yep. Right. Because they can be masked with yeah. growth and maturation, right? You're, you're claiming all these great gains in strength and I'm looking at your data and I'm saying, yeah, that kid just grew. They were going to get stronger no matter what. It's not really your training program why they got stronger. Yeah. Right? So that, that's why understanding growth and maturation is so key. And the last thing I'm going to leave you with. Yeah. Um, and then I want to hear some of your thoughts and, and maybe go on to the next question because I've been talking a lot here. But um, and, and I'm guilty of this as well because I was trained in physical and biological growth and maturation. But understanding cognitive and psychosocial mm -hmm. development of these kids is so important as well, right? I mean, when kids come in, we don't train them from the neck down, right? Like they have a head on top of their, yeah, <laughs> on top of their shoulders with this brain in it, and it affects their behavior and their psychosocial interactions and everything, which can impact your training sessions as yes. well. Yes. So also understanding, you know, that psychosocial cognitive emotional development alongside the physical development is, is essential. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I mean, uh, I was, you know, talking about that. I mean, I was training this uh, girl yesterday and, you know, I, I'm the type of person that I can like read you, like, I'm not, I'm not going to see her and tell you I'm a mind reader, but just body language, uh, just the way that she was sort of expressing herself yeah. and tell there's something wrong. And you can, and, and, and just from that, just from that, like, uh, you know, you, you know, like you have, you, at that time I'm like trying to figure out, okay, something's wrong. I'm going to have to like figure out a session for her now because what I have is not going to work. Um, so it's one of those things where you just got to like, you know, quickly adapt to the situation. And I, um, and I, no, I totally agree with you on the, um, the whole, also the, the maturation of, of younger kids. It's, it's huge in soccer. Um, it, it's a little, I don't know how, how much of a, how much of a difference it is in like other sports, but you know, I'm around a lot of soccer players and, you know, I mean, you know, I have this kid that I train that, at 13 years old, he's easily six foot, 13 or 14 years old. He's six foot already. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, Jesus. And, um, so it, and then I have another kid that's same, same team. And he's like to his thigh, like, or his waist. So it's like, and that's the perfect example of what you're saying of, you know, the biological age of those kids, like you asked, you could probably, I could probably ask the one kid that's taller, you know, when were you born? He's probably born in the early half of the year versus the other kid where he's born in the later half of the year. So, you know, all that. And there's, 
And then on top of that, there is a bunch of uh, research I've read before about in Canada, what they do with hockey players, where they say that most hockey players that are born in like the, I first think it was in, yeah, first quarter, first like quarter, yeah. you're it's more, you're more than, exactly. yeah, you're more than likely to be a pro hockey player versus kids that are born in the, like, I guess the last quarter or last half of the year. Yeah. So I, yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. And I, and as a soccer coach, you know, um, dealing with that same situation, um, you know, it, it's hard because, you know, you you don't have as much, uh, of the tools that you're talking about in, in Europe where, you know, you can figure out, Hey, this kid should, these kids can be over here and train these kids over here because they're older or younger. It's, you know, you got to put it all together, but you got to figure out a way to make it, everyone have a successful session. So. Yeah. Um, and that's the goal. Like you try to figure out at the beginning of practice, like how's everybody feeling, you know, kind of get, get a vibe of like what's going on, how their day is. And then you could kind of go from there. That's kind of like, I don't know, I've learned from other strength coaches, other soccer coaches. Um, and it helps you just, before you even start off, you try to get a vibe of like how everybody's doing that day. And I think that that's, to me, it's a huge game changer. Part of the art of coaching, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, just kind of finish off here. I mean, you know, you've been around for a while. You you work with a lot of sports performance coaches. You know, what, what would you suggest to, you know, future, you know, people that listen to this that are sports performance coaches and the ones that are, you know, up and coming, you know, what kind of suggestions um, to help them be, you know, successful and keep helping these, you know, youth athletes, um, you know, get what they, what they need at the, you know, need and want at the same time. I'm going to start with the up and coming coaches. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're about eight weeks into the semester now. So early on in the semester, I spoke to all of the students in my classes and also to a larger group of of students who are in our exercise science club about this same thing. And I talked about education and experience. Like if you're an up and coming, you know, you're an undergraduate student right now and you want to get into the field, mm -hmm. like you have to do well and you have to understand the content. You have to have a good education, mm -hmm. but you also have to get out of the classroom and out of the textbook and you have to gain hands-on practical experience. Um, the classroom um, knowledge and the lessons in class are going to be much more meaningful. Um, if you have that practical experience, they're going to make a lot more sense. You're going to be able mm -hmm. to connect. You're going to be able to connect to it better. And also some of the stuff that you've already learned, once you apply, it's going to make a lot more sense as well. But at the end of the day, um, we both know that you can have a 4.0 GPA, but if you don't have hands-on practical skills, you're not going to be a very good coach or sports scientist, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can't just be able to take exams and ACE exams or standardized tests or certification exams, right? Or whatever, just because you have CSCS behind your name or whatever certification it is. It doesn't mean that you're a good coach. It just may, means that you have you 
you have a bachelor's degree, you have a master's degree, you pass the coursework for it, uh, you defended your thesis, um, or you pass the certification exam. But again, having that hands-on practical experience is so, so vital, you know, to being what we would really say would be a qualified and experienced professional. Mm -hmm. So again, sometimes sacrificing the GPA, maybe instead of having a 3.8, maybe you have a 3.3 GPA, but you know, it suffered because you were out in the trenches getting hands on practical experience. And that's going to go a long way. Um, I think that's one thing that I think all young people should have an understanding if, if, they're, if they want to pursue a career in this field. Um, the second thing is people skills. And that kind of goes hand in hand with hands-on practical experience, right? Like being able to communicate effectively, uh, Understanding human interactions um, is is so important. And again, having a 4.0 GPA, but not being able to have a conversation with people or to explain something, having a very low social or emotional intelligence score, that's not going to bode well either, right? So really honing, like honing your people skills, being able to read and understand people, kind of the, the psychology and the behavior of people understanding ego, your ego and other people's ego, learning how to negotiate, uh, sometimes persuade people, um, you know, just all of those human interaction and communication skills and people skills are so, so vital, really vital, Julian. And, uh, you know, I've been on several other podcasts and I admit it, like up until, up until five to eight years ago, I had really, really poor people skills, really poor people skills. And I've really taken it upon myself in the last five to eight years to really improve upon that. And I keep mm-hmm. improving upon that as well. Yeah. Because, because relationships, they, they can make or, break, make or break deals, right? They can make or break careers. They can make or break jobs. They can make or break job interviews, so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, co- coaching and sports science, it's a people business. Mm-hmm. So you have to yeah. be able to have those people skills and, and human communication and interaction skills are, are so important. Yeah. But again, those are things that you don't learn in textbooks and in the classroom or watching videos or listening to podcasts. Those are things that you learn by being around people and just, you know, having, having, uh, you know, conversa- conversations with them and also just, you know, understanding yourself as well as a human you know, your personality traits and how you react to situations, um, being able to be comfortable, being uncomfortable, as we say. And, mm-hmm. and part of that is being evaluated and criticized as well as you learn and grow, you know, how to, how to communicate with individuals. Um, I think I, so I think both of those things, that practical hands-on experience and the people skills are really, really important. With that said, I'm going to go back. You still have to have some content knowledge, man. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. You, 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 can know how, you can know how to do things. You also need to understand why you're doing things. Yes. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, I'm not saying I have to be careful in my words. Like, you know, 
you know, sacrifice your GPA, sacrifice your content knowledge, maybe a little bit in lieu of those practical and people skills, but it doesn't mean ignore it. I'm not saying that. I want to be really clear on that. Don't yeah. ignore. Yeah, really, a combination. Yeah, re- really, really, really dig in. Really dig into um, you know the content, but along the way, you have to be getting that practical experience yeah. and learning how to interact with people. So that's kind of for the newcomers. I think some of those lessons can be for other young professionals who. Well, go ahead. One more thing on the newcomers. Do you because you deal with a lot of undergrad? Do you suggest to them that i mean you know obviously internship things like that but you know if they can if they're you know at that you know if you're an undergrad at that age you can get kind of certified do you ever suggest to get a job like maybe get a certification get a job in you know a local gym whatever or is it you know because they have sort of an access with you now um you know they can do what they do with you yeah. So yeah, the students are, you know, again, we're just getting started here, but yeah, yeah, you know, we're, we're developing a program where undergraduates can basically do almost like an apprenticeship with us. Okay. 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 And it's kind of, it's kind of a leveled apprenticeship Okay. where early on they're just observing, they might be doing some readings they're sitting in on seminars. They're kind of mm-hmm. learning about the field mm-hmm. and then they're going to, they're going to have to demonstrate, right. Mm-hmm. Some competency before I allow them to train athletes, mm-hmm. you know, someone's not just going to walk in and say, Oh, I'm interested in this. And I'm going to say, okay, you're in charge of that station. Go, yeah. co- go coach him up on this agility drill or whatever it is. That's yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. Okay. You know, like I want you to be around, show some competency, um, you know, get, start to get an understanding of the whys of what we're doing, but the hows of what we're doing. And we'll do, you know, we'll do some clinic clinicking with them as well. And, uh, you know, a lot of questioning, Hey, what'd you see? What, 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 what do you think went, went well? What do you think went bad? What would you improve upon? Mm-hmm. So just, just trying to help them along in, in learning and understanding and then, yeah, getting them involved, you know, bit by bit until, yeah. until finally that, okay, I'm ready to stand in front of a group of 20 young athletes and run the show. You know, like that, that's where I want them to be before they graduate because too often we don't allow that in our undergraduate education programs. You know, you graduate with a degree and you go for an interview and they ask you, so tell me about your experiences. And you're like, uh, I have a four point, I have a 4.0 GPA. I did really well in all my classes, but I don't have that much experience. No, like go to an interview and be able to say, I, I, I interned or I volunteered for two or three years, you know, and again, it's more than a semester. Mm-hmm. And, and I tell this to undergrads all the time as well. Like, I'm just going to use the example of uh, uh, taking blood pressure for you. Like, I'm going to use that example. So teach a kid how to take a blood pressure. They come into the lab. They bring their buddy in. They pump the blood pressure cuff up. They take about five blood pressures. And then they call it good. I'm done. They walk out of the lab. No, you're not an expert yet, right? Like, you got to take hundreds, if not thousands of blood pressures yeah. to, really, to really get it. And that's mm-hmm. no different than anything else as well, Those right? Reps. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you can't just like, like I'm, I'm teaching a strength and conditioning, an implementation of strength and conditioning class right now. So we did one week of speed, one week of agility, one week of plyometrics, and then we're going to do three or four weeks of resistance training. But again, once you finish the class, that doesn't mean you're an expert, right? 
That means I had the first exposure, but you got to keep getting those repetitions and that experience in, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it, it, I, I tell the students, it's just like motor learning. When you yeah. have an athlete who, and, you're, and you're wanting that athlete to learn a new skill, squat, lunge, throw a baseball, kick a soccer ball, wh- whatever the skill is, it takes a lot of repetitions for you to become an expert performance and master this coaching skill. You need lots of repetitions as well. Mm-hmm. It can't mm-hmm. just be, oh, I sat in on two sessions and I delivered one session. No, it's got to be multiple, multiple, right? To really hone those skills. And, it, and it, I think in different environments, it becomes important yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Because, you know, you're going to have, uh, you know, different personalities and even in different sports, um, you know, different areas in the in the area that you're in, uh, you know, di- different types of people. So, you know, everybody learns a different way. Everybody interacts a different way. Um, so it's, yeah, I, do, I definitely agree with that. Just you know, being able to, um, you know, you know, when I got into it, it's, it's very different. It was more of like, I, I kind of, I guess I, it was kind of very similar as very, I just showed up to some sessions, watched, observed for like multiple weeks and didn't get, didn't get paid. I was just driving out there you know, 30, 40 minutes away from where I lived, um, for almost a whole summer. I didn't, didn't do any, uh, I helped out a little bit like setup, but other than that, it was observation, just learning like why. And, you know, from there it was just kind of next step was another company that I did it at. And then they kind of hired me cause they needed coaches, but that was after like, you know, months of reps, um, for just doing for free. Not, I wasn't getting paid for anything. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I totally, I totally, I totally agree with you. And I tell that, I tell that to kids that, that, um, you know, ask me about my, the profession and then, you know, kids that, you know, as, uh, you know, uh, I've had a couple of interns, um, and just kids that are like in it that are at other schools that are in exercise science. Um, that are interested in, you know, working and doing that. I'm like, look, man, you're, you're going to gain a lot of knowledge, but you have to get the reps. Like if you don't get those reps, you're not going to get much out of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and Julian, if I could leave, uh, one thing for maybe the younger professionals, right. So like, even for yourself, uh, self-evaluation. Mm-hmm. right like thinking about your mm-hmm. practice as well like just don't don't go out mm-hmm. and coach but be be reflective as well right and, and and be evaluated by you know other other peers uh other mentors have them come and watch sessions and be able to have some thick skin i mean remember it's not a personal attack right like let's Let's have some constructive criticism and be able to take that constructive criticism and, and, and grow. So, you know, after your own sessions, just sit and say, okay, what went well? What do I want to improve? And go through some self-evaluation and reflection.
Sorry about that. Hello? Hey, how are you? That was my bad, my bad. That's yeah, okay. So you were saying um, they're reflective. So Yeah, so, so I think for young coaches to be able to, you know, after a training session, yeah. just be reflective of your practice and, and self-evaluate yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like, like we can't think like, okay, I, I, I've gotten reps in. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'm confident. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I have this. Like you need to keep, you know, keep growing and, and, and be reflective in your practice. Like what are, what, what is going well? What do I need to improve upon? Have some self-evaluation in there, but also reach out to, you know, mentors and peers and maybe have yeah. them observe you. And that's going to take mm-hmm. some thick skin once in a while. Right. Because like, just say, Hey, I, I want you, I, like I tell my colleagues this, I just told one of my colleagues today this because they came and evaluated my teaching. I said, Hey, I have thick skin. Like, let me know, man. Like, just don't say, Oh, that was really good. Like, no, I have thick skin. I want to know, like, tell me, tell me two things I could do to improve. I don't know what mm-hmm. I want to, I don't want to know what I did. Right. I mm-hmm. want you to tell me two things that I can do to improve. Tell me anything. I, I don't care what it is. I have thick skin, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you have to be able to accept that constructive criticism as well to keep growing and improving. Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you hundred percent. Uh, you know, it, that's the only way you get a little bit better at, you know, every, every time, um, if you're able to, t- but I feel like a lot of, a lot of coaches, uh, just can't take that. Yeah. <laughs> the, well, the constructive hard. criticism. Yeah. Um, but I, I personally hear think that. It, it's important. <laughs> it's important. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Joe. Appreciate it. Um, I will uh, put it, you know, where people can connect with you um, and, you know, learn more about the, you know, long-term athletic development and get some more information. Cause I, you know, like to me, it's, it's very important for, you know, the future of the kids in this country. Um, so I, that's why I try to, you know, get as, get as many people that are kind of like in it on my podcast to, you know, continue to educate the people that listen to this and, you know, parents that I, you know, refer to these conversations that I have with people like you. So great. Yeah. Appreciate it. Julian. Thanks for the conversation and uh, taking the time to, to listen to my story a little bit. Thanks for listening to Train to Perform with Julian Sisman. Learn how you can work with Julian in a personal training session, either online or in person at prepareforperformance.com. And follow on social media for more tips on training, fitness, and sports performance on Twitter at jsisman_pfp underscore PFP and Instagram at prepareforperformance.